0: Good morning. The text that we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. We began a series uh, last week, actually, looking at Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, and the section we'll be looking at this morning is printed in your bulletin. Uh, our, our Glass runs a show called The American Life, and in it uh, she asked a question of 100, it's very informal, but asked a question of 100 participants. Uh, the question was this, is the life that you're living now the life that you envisioned when you first started thinking about planning for your life as an adult. As she said, this was plan A, and how many of you are living this sort of life that you thought that this is what fate had in store for you? She asked this informal group of 100 people to raise their hands if they thought they were living that kind of life. only one person raised their hand and said yes, I'm living plan A and not plan B. And she was 23 years old. Most of us know um, the reality of living plan B, uh, that it is a universal human reality. Uh, That really brings us to uh, our text from the book of Romans this morning. He wrote this letter, Paul, St. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome in about 57 A.D. He'd never been to this church, he'd never really met any of these individuals. It's most likely, or at least from our best uh, guess, is that he wrote this during his third missionary journey, possibly from Corinth in Greece. What Paul desperately wants is for these people that he's never met, and the most powerful city in the ancient Near East, with the most powerful king in the ancient Near East to understand uh, and experience the gospel. This letter is caught, or uh, the people in Rome, this church in Rome is really caught between Jewish and Gentile uh, Christians is the best description. One writer said this, whatever else can be said about this letter, uh, it is... No doubt, Paul's masterpiece would be the best description. Look with me as I read from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The wrath of God is being revealed against heaven against all ungodliness or against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So the people were without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the simple desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than, their, rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that whoever does such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we pray now you'd be with us as we look into this letter from your servant Paul uh, to a church that he has never visited, uh, much like ours. And so we pray, Father, that you'd be with us for even this morning as we gather um, from various places with various uh, life circumstances and situations, all of us need to hear from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have a tooth that looks perfectly healthy, or at least it looks perfectly healthy to me. Um, What I mean by that is I've never had any issues out of it. Uh, I've not even ever had a cavity in it, uh, which is unusual. Uh, I recently visited a dentist. They took an x-ray, and they came back with this uh, disturbing news, according to them. Uh, This tooth... Uh, desperately needed to be extracted and replaced. Uh, now, I, I'm just going to be honest. My reaction was less than positive. Um, I have not a love-hate relationship with the dentist. It's more of a hate-hate one uh, is a better way to uh, My response was something like this. What, what are you talking about? Um, it's not even bothering me. Uh, the dentist was very patient and tried to explain. It was rare, uh, she said, which figures, uh, but this tooth was absorbing itself from the inside out, Uh, and the fear was that it would spread to other teeth around it. Now, to show you how I felt about this, my response was, how long can I wait before I have to have something done? Her response was simply this, I can't answer. And by the way, I've not had the tooth repaired, and there's no plans currently to have it repaired. Paul in verse 18 says, we suppress the truth, is the way he describes it. It's crucial to actually see what Paul says here uh, in these opening verses, or the opening rounds of verse 18. What Paul says is that everyone knows God. And there are no exceptions to this, regardless of what we tell ourselves. Paul goes on to further to say that this knowledge consists of a knowledge of God's power and His nature that we're utterly, completely dependent upon Him, and because of that, we're completely accountable to Him. I want you to notice, he doesn't say that we know everything about Him. Actually, Paul never says that about anyone, including Christians. We don't know His love and His mercy, for instance, even from what God displays to us. But what we do know is we know enough to be without excuse. Now, how do we know or how do we see this sort of suppression occur in and among us and actually in the world around us? First, just the spread of it uh, that Paul describes. And it's not spread through evil behavior, although that's the first place that we run. Paul says it actually is spread through a distorted thinking. One writer said this, this is a sheer waste of God-given intellectual power." That there actually is such a thing as healthy and unhealthy thinking. It's like this. Human reason is like taking a compass into a room of magnets. Just to further speak to this, every addict I know is brilliant. What do I mean by that? Every one of them are able to use their brilliance to escape detection. And it's not just enough to look at that. Just think of every dictator that you know that crushes oppression. And all of us engage in what I would call irrational leaps where our lives are not lived consistently with what we know. One of the main ways that this shows is that we believe that we call the shots. We decide what is right and wrong. And Paul even unrolls this even further and says one of the signs of this, the symptoms of this is that we live a life devoid of gratitude. We simply won't accept what God has done for us or what he's done around us. And it's not just that our thinking is distorted and the way he describes it is futile. He unrolls this even further and says our foolish hearts are darkened. For Paul, the heart is really the center of our motivation. It was meant to be a source of life. And the way he describes it, it becomes a fungus uh, or has a fungus at the very root. And we trick ourselves about this continuously. Verse 22. Although they claim to be wise, they become fools. We see this virtually every evening on the news. We see this globally. Wisdom, for some, is a stockpile of nuclear weapons. For others, wisdom is helping the elderly or infirm commit suicide. For others, look at those sort of remedies, and we think that's completely foolish and insane. That's how it spreads, and the symptom of that, Paul unrolls for us uh, in verses 21 through 22. And that is just this great exchange that occurs, and it occurs in the area of worship. We laugh um, in our modern culture at the idea of ancient idolatry. We look at that and think, how ridiculous. Look at what Paul unrolls. They exchange the image of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings. Birds and animals and reptiles. We look at that and we think, how ridiculous that would be. How silly, actually. Stone and wood. The reality is, according to Paul, we don't stop worshipping. We just change the object. And we know this, at least from our own life experiences. We must worship something. We're built for this. Uh, We must live for something would be another way to describe this. Something captures our imagination. There's something within each of us that finds a resting place for our deepest hopes, and it calms our greatest fears. And because God made the world to be very good, Uh, we find those resting places, those places of calm in the places of beauty that he actually gives us. Dick Kyes in a book called The Idol Factory writes this, if we try to make something finite fill the place that only God can fill, we will try to extract an unrealistic level of meaning from that idol. When that doesn't work, it only invites us to try harder. It should not surprise us in a deeply idolatrous society that books on codependency and addiction Form a growth industry. People feel enslaved to substances, unwanted behavior, and to each other. The idol begins as a means of power, enabling us to control, but then overpowers and controls us. Paul's point is simply this. Bad behavior doesn't come from the body winning a victory over the mind. Instead, it comes from twisted thinking, and the body just comes along for the ride. The Western world worships, our world, our culture, worships all kinds of things. Money, sex, power, image. What Paul is not saying is that every individual does this. I want you to see what he's describing, but rather what he's giving a description of is the human race as a whole. It's not just what we see. It's not just the spread that Paul describes but also God's reaction as well. And he launches it in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. Uh, one writer said this. This is just a sort of a catchphrase for that God is not angry without a cause. And how does it show itself? It's not shown actually just in our desires that God somehow is just angry because we desire things. Some have tried to read this this way, but that's actually not what Paul is saying at all. It's not desire for bad things that Paul is talking about, but actually it's an over-desire for very good things that Paul is talking about. Desire is put into overdrive. Oscar Wilde sort of noted this when he said this, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. And I want you to see that God is angry not sometime in the future, but instead the way Paul is describing this is that this, is a current description of God's response. He gives us what we want, is the way Paul describes it. He lets us have what will destroy us. And repeatedly in these verses, this reaction is described this way. God gave them over. In verses 24, 26, and 28. What is he trying to describe here is simply this. When God gives us responsibility, He means it. The choices we make, not just as individuals, but as a species, have consequences. And God allows us to explore those consequences fully. Bit by bit, piece by piece, our humanity dissolves, is the way he describes it. And again, this description that he gives in these verses describes the human race universally As we know it, as we experience it, life begins to deconstruct, is what one writer said. The things we think will free us suddenly control us. We have to have them. And yet we're always left needing and wanting more. Caligula was a Roman emperor, and he was truly in a league all by himself. What do I mean by that? He used to write new laws. Uh, He took great delight in doing this in very, extremely small letters, and he would pin them high on the wall so that no one could see them or read them. And then, for entertainment purposes, he would punish people for breaking them. A lot of us look, and we read this, and think that's exactly what God is like, and that's a sign of the distorted thinking that Paul is talking about. It's a distorted sort of image reputation-destroying image that the world perfects that this God, the God that we know, somehow has this capricious anger. What Paul is not talking about is that God somehow loses his temper and he's lashing out. In fact, it's exactly the opposite, that God cares passionately about his creation His decrees are actually built into the fabric of what he's made. Activities that deface, damage, destroy humankind, uh, he's adamantly opposed to. Just think with me for a minute. Rape, murder, torture, economic depression, God hates them all uh, is what Paul is describing. He's angry about them all. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't be a good God at all. God is not going to look at me and say, look, your tooth is perfectly fine when it's not. Your tooth is dangerously diseased and it needs radical treatment is the best description. This world that we live in is made to be a place of kindness, gentleness, generosity, humility. It's supposed to be a place that is life-giving. Anything that opposes that, anything that works counter to that, is inherently destructive is the way Paul describes it. Now, how do you know that this sort of turning over, how do you know that God is not pleased would be the best description? What are the symptoms that he gives? When humans go wrong, the entire world goes out of kilter. And Paul alludes to that simply in these verses. And the way he does it The place that he goes is to creation. The instance that Paul says of corruption in the human life and in the world that we know is sexual relations. Verses 24 through 26, he covers a distortion of humanity and creation really of any kind. He writes this, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than creator, who is forever praised. Amen. See, the question that Paul would be asking us to at least consider is this. How do you use your sexuality? Is it, would you say it's defined by uh, taking or withholding instead of giving? Because Paul says all of that, The giving of your body in such a way that it distorts creation. I want you to notice that Paul could have started this entire section with the Ten Commandments, but he doesn't. He goes back much further to actually the structure of the universe. And then in verses 26 and 27, another example of this giving over. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lush. I know that even as we read this this morning, that leaves many of us feeling edgy. And there's virtually no non-controversial way around this. I also know that for some of you, this is incredibly painful. It is the longest section in the Bible on homosexuality, and it's only two verses. There are some qualifications, at least, that need to be made before we even look into 26 and 27. It's not that Paul is writing as a Jew and he's particularly disgusted. Why would I say that? There are lots of cultures around that Paul uh, lived and moved in that perfectly accepted this. Paul is also not pointing the finger at Nero, who indulged in these practices. What he's also not talking about is the exploitation of younger ones by older ones, although that happened. He's also not talking about promiscuous sex. Paul would have been familiar, actually, in the ancient Near East with long-term, stable loving, same-sex relationships. It is completely unreasonable to think that somehow that recently came to surface and Paul knew nothing about it. Instead, what Paul is referencing is Genesis 1 through 3. When he talks about unnatural relations, he's talking about something that's against nature. He assumes that there's a structure in creation that's not random and arbitrary. That we as God's people are created in His image. We're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. N.T. Wright said this, Male and females are very different but work together to make the music of creation. That's why he would view this. He views this as a corruption of human life. Why would he single this out? And why would he start in this? Paul's point is simply this. That's not what we were made for. He is not suggesting that people that are attracted to the same sex or engage in it or find themselves in this situation somehow got there through idolatry. I will tell you that reads a modern individualism into the text that doesn't exist. Because what Paul is saying and what he points to is the problem with the human race as a whole. They're not exceptionally bad people out there is another way to describe this. Instead, this creation distortion indicates that all of creation, and especially humans, are out of joint. All of us this morning, no matter where you come from, you have to know that no one is sexually not broken is the best description I would give it to you. Some of you know that I do a lot of diving in uh, the Grand or in Cayman Brac, and one of the things that happens is the boat has to go out through a cut in the reef to actually get to the dive sites. It's normally fairly rough right at that particular point in time because that's where all the waves break, and so it's uh, difficult to get through, is the best description. The crew gives the same instruction over and over again every time you go through that cut. For your safety, hold on to something or sit down. The ride is about to get bumpy. And that brings us to our next section in verses 28 and following. Um, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Uh, They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing wrong. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. I want you to notice, Paul talks about homosexuality in two verses here. In 28 through 32, uh, he describes something else altogether. This section, for many of us, strikes much closer to home. And what Paul has done is... He sort of eliminated and destroyed any and all comparisons. Envy, gossip, disloyalty. How would you like to live in a neighborhood described by these characteristics? When your neighbors were, this is exactly who they were, uh, without any sort of reservations. Gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. I will tell you, if you moved into a neighborhood like that, it wouldn't be long before you'd move. Paul is saying seeking God's blessing, His approval through morality, is just as much idolatry as greed or homosexuality. Worshiping, giving ourselves to what we think gives us life. And the last verse of this section is really the most chilling of them all. Because it's one thing to commit murder, it's another thing to applaud it. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these serious things, but they approve of those who practice them. To live in a world where evil is praised is laughed at. Uh, Where good is actually uh, discouraged. It's hard for us to see this, but... Uh, if you're a parent this morning, let me ask you this. Have you ever encouraged your kids to make an idol out of grades and exams? Do you ever nod sympathetically at somebody else's envy? There was a quote that was found by Napoleon's soldiers in Egypt when they were excavating. And the graffiti, it was actually a, a wall graffiti, that was they dated it from 800 B.C., there were no comments on the wall other than this one, and it said simply this, the younger generation is going to the dogs. Um, apparently, disrespecting their elders, they had no worth ethic, and they were not following traditions. You know, it's strangely comforting to know that our perception of the world getting worse is not new. Um, that There's something about that that actually is encouraging. Throughout history, uh, our world, the world we live in, is a mixture of human tears and laughter. And we read this passage, especially 28 through 32, with sort of a sad and tragic sense of recognition. You know, I know these people. I see them on TV. I pass them on Market Street. I've gotten emails from somebody just like this. The alarming the really shocking and disturbing thing is that I see that person in the mirror. See, the line between good and evil runs through the middle of each of us, not between us and them. My daughter used to live in the Fifth Ward, and her car was totaled by an uninsured driver and was towed to a junkyard And every day, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but every day there's storage fees in spite of the fact that the car's a complete disaster and it's not going anywhere. Eventually we decided it would just be best for her to sign the car over to the yard to cover the fees and just to let this car go. Um, She went to sign the paperwork, and part of that is that she had to provide her address. And this woman who ran the junkyard looked at the address she provided and she looked up at my daughter and this is what she said, Lavender Street. What do you live on Lavender Street, folks? And my daughter responded, Well, I messed up. And this woman breaks into this huge grin. It was beautiful. And she said this, I've messed up too. It was beautiful. Paul perhaps paints a map of the world. And what he does is he shatters the mirror of what it should be. See, we look at this description and we shake our heads and we roll our eyes. Some of you think, that's absolutely right. I'm glad you finally talked about this. If that's you, then verses 28 through 32 are really bad news for you. Because what these verses actually are doing... And what they're setting up for what's coming in Paul's letter is this. He's beginning the process of exposing our pride, our self-righteousness, any satisfaction that I'm not like them. See, what these verses tell us is that really and truly, we need what Paul was talking about last week. That we need desperately verses 16 and 17 that we need a power that's going to eradicate or begin to eradicate these things in our own lives. By faith, we can be acquitted. We can be embraced. We can be brought in. What these verses force us to do is run back to 16 and 17 to the cross. It gives us the freedom and the humility to say, where am I envious? Where am I slanderous? Where am I disloyal? Where does my lust run amuck? A better question would be this. What is my functional master? What has gone from simple enjoyment to over-desire in my own life? The only way to get that back is for Jesus to come into your life and to bring you back. I don't need to give you principles for eradicating any of this because I'll tell you none of them work. Um, I don't need to give you sort of techniques to do this. There's no method to bring this about. Instead, what we have is that we have a real Savior who comes with power. Power is found there. The power to change. The good news is this. It's not only available uh, to anyone. It's available to every one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that you call on us as your people to come before you with great humility and honesty and openness. We readily see ourselves in the words that your apostle has written. We readily see that all of creation is broken and fallen and twisted and distorted. We mourn over the ways that we contribute to that. And we pray that as your people, you would restore us, strengthen us, renew us. Even this morning, that we would experience and know your power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We come now.